Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. In my early 20s, when I was looking for a job, a family friend, Norena Barbella, connected me with her college best friend and recruiter, Margie Strauss. Margie and I immediately hit it off and have stayed in touch for years. We've teamed up on some things for our businesses and hopefully we'll do even more of that. Every time I speak with or see Margie, we both ask each other how we're feeling. We don't get into the details of our invisible illnesses, but we each know the other one genuinely cares and that we're going through something. I'm really excited to have Margie on the podcast today so we can dig into her experience living with multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Margie. Hi. So happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. I am a recruiter. I'm a managing partner of a recruiting company. I've been doing that for 32 years. I'm a wife with a phenomenal husband. I'm a mother of two adult sons. Um, I'm a connector. That's what I've always said about myself. And I've been doing it forever before there was really even anything to connect or anybody to connect with. I just knew I needed to be out there. And a little bit about my MS. So I have had MS or I've known I've had MS since 2001. And to me, MS is the kind of disease, maybe other people feel this way about whatever they're dealing with, but it's the kind of thing that it's easier to diagnose backwards, where I can now look at things and be like, oh, that may have been a trigger point or something I should note. But in 2001, I was going through a tremendous amount of stress. The company that I had worked for went out of business. Myself and my current three partners, we were the top billers at that company, and we decided that we were going to start our own company. And we knew nothing about doing that. And we rented somebody's conference room and we had telephones and a folding table and it was scary. And I always was a little bit off balance. I felt like I got dizzy easily. You know, I always had little things that I always wrote it off to, you know, moving too quickly or not being careful or not being graceful, those kinds of things. And it was the summer of 2001 and I was away with my family. My kids were young at the time. So I have two boys, my eldest son, I want to say he was like 10 or 11. And my younger son was about seven or eight. And we were going to the Cape with a big family trip. And we used to play a game in the car when my kids were little. When we'd see a Volkswagen, we would say, punch buggy, no backs. And my older son had seen that and he kind of said, punch buggy. And he hit me. And I said, oh, Jess, be careful. And I was sitting in a, in a seatbelt. Not that he really hurt me, but he kind of caught, caught me off guard. And in the middle of the night that night, I woke up with a shooting pain that started at the very, very base of my neck, all the way down my right side of my body. I mean, I, I had never felt anything like that in my life. I felt like I was being, it was electric, like I was being electrocuted. I mean, I was awake through it. It was an odd pain. I woke up my husband and I said to him, I have this crazy pain. It's running down the right side of my body. I feel like I'm on fire. I feel like it's electric. And he looked at me and he said, what can I do? I said, get me ice. Because I really felt like from the inside going outward, it was like almost like sparks hmm. were flying. So he went and got me ice and he put ice all over my body. And then I fell asleep somehow. And I woke up the next day and I kind of looked like I had a stroke. I was dragging my leg. I'm a lefty. And, and me too. Uh, 
Um, and I couldn't use my left hand to hold a spoon or to write my name or anything that any of those fine motor tasks that you use your hand for. And, you know, we were on Cape Cod, you know, and I didn't want to, I was, I've never been somebody who sort of stops the fun. So I was like, well, we're on vacation. I twisted my neck. I, I was taking washcloths and heating them in the microwave and putting them on my neck. I just, you know, I was like, all right, this will, I'll get over this. You didn't think it was anything of no, no, I really didn't. And I was someone who never went to a doctor prior. I was somebody who sort of was like, I muscled through shit. You know, I just kind of powered on. I was like, all right, well, I'm a mother. I have two kids. I run a business. Of course, I'm tired. Of course, my neck hurts. Of course, whatever. Um, but as the day went on, these symptoms started to get worse. The walking got harder. Using my hand got a little more difficult. And my mother's um, best friends in life are nurses. And she called them. And they said, listen, we don't know what it is, but it sounds neurological. And she should go for an MRI. How did you it know, feel hearing that? Uh, at the time, I don't even think, I mean, I didn't love it. I felt it was more of an imposition in my life and my vacation more than, oh my God, this is going to be multiple sclerosis. It was much more like, oh shit. Yeah. Um, so we're on, we're on Cape Cod. We went to the little local hospital. They're like, well, we can't do an MRI here. We can take an x-ray and there's no bones broken. <laughs> you know, so they took an x-ray. We're like, okay, that's not going to be helpful. And I think the next day my mother said to me, you know, I think you got to go home. I think you got to go back to New York. I think you have to get this checked out. And I, my mother was frightened. And my mother isn't easily scared. Um, and I was really thinking about what a pain to pack up my kids and schlep back to New York. And, you know, what a bummer. But we did. And on the way back to New York, I, I didn't even have, as I said, I never had a doctor. I never had a hospital. never had anything. But we went to Mount Sinai, which is where I had my kids. And I said to my husband, well, I, I had two babies here. I, I feel safe here. I'll go here. So he dropped me off. He took the kids. Me. I stayed there. And I, and I started to go through my whole thing. Right away, I, th I think they did an MRI, if I'm recalling correctly. And they said, we're going to admit you. Whoa. Okay. So I knew then there was something. There was something. And that scared me. What did you think? What was going through your mind at that point? I can go very quickly from good to bad. So I was like, I have a brain tumor. I have something I'm going to die from. I have something super awful. I, I don't even know what I thought it would be, but I just knew I was alone in the hospital. They were admitting me. The girl who was taking care of me was some medical student. I don't know where she was in the process, some, some newbie, very new person. And she didn't, you know, she was not the right person to kind of throw my way, obviously in retrospect. Um, and they admitted me. And very soon afterwards, that day, they told me I had multiple sclerosis. Now, here's the crazy thing. So my grandmother, who lived to be 101, who I loved dearly and was the most amazing human being alive, when we were kids, my sister and I were kids, she had a very dear friend who had multiple sclerosis. Now, back in those days, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, there was really nothing you could do for MS. So this person lived in a wheelchair. Um, her body was very fragile, very tight, nothing moved, and they were in a wheelchair. My grandmother, I remember being a kid and her saying, oh, my friend who has multiple sclerosis, MS, MS, MS. My initials are MS. So as a kid, I always had this crazy sensation of like, I hope I don't get MS. You know how you worry, like, I hope I don't get cancer. I hope I don't cross the street and get hit by a car. I hope I... This was my fear from the time I was little. Oh my God, I hope I don't get MS. I didn't even know what MS was. So when the doctor came in and said to me, you have MS, I wasn't shocked. I know that sounds crazy. Whoa, that's so wild. I mean, it was like one of those weird, crazy things. And it sounds weird to almost say it. But it's really what I believe. That's with my initials. You can ask my sister. I mean, that's really the truth. 
What and did that mean to you at that point then? I knew I had something. At that point, I knew I had something serious. And I knew that the person I had seen had had this disease and was in a wheelchair. And it scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. But there were so many other thoughts running through my brain in terms of, okay, what am I going to do now? Am I going to stay here at this hospital? Like, I, I couldn't even think of, like, the basics. What am I doing with my kids at home with my, my husband? They're going to be scared. Like, I was trying to figure out all of it in one minute. And that was more frightening than anything. Yeah, I mean, you're a businesswoman in New York with kids and mother trying to figure out, you know, what you do with your life now. Exactly. So what did you do? So right away, so they moved me up to the floor that I think housed MS patients and other patients, I guess, neurological patients. And I had a roommate. This was a terrible, terrible story, but it, it's true. A young, beautiful woman who was also diagnosed with very severe MS. And I was her roommate. I looked at her and it scared me so. I panicked. I really panicked. It's like, oh my God. First of all, I kept thinking, I felt so sorry for my husband. I'm like, he can divorce. Like, I just felt like, who can, how can I save somebody from this? I have to go through this, but who am I going to save? How am I going to save them so that they don't have to deal with this? Because it was really scary. So they put me in a room with this woman who scared me to death and scared my mother to death. My mother was so awfully frightened. And I have a handicapped father. So I think she felt so unlucky and so not, it was not fair. Thank God her two nurse friends who were her best friends in life came and said to her, snap out of it. We got to get your shit together. You got to get it together because you have to be strong for Margie. Margie's got to, Margie needs you. So that was, you know, they helped her with that. And they sent in, I guess, the doctor that was on call from, for uh, Mount Sinai, and I'm sure he's a very good physician. And But he was very, like, cut and dry, very fact-driven. Like, yes, you have multiple sclerosis. Here's what we're going to start you on. But, you know, like almost like a litany of, of, of things. And I, I looked at him, and I said, you don't know me. You don't even look at me. I am somebody's wife and somebody's mother and somebody's best friend, and I own a business. And... I just knew in my heart yeah. that he was not my doctor. I just felt it. And I come from a family of, of action. You know, the people I were birthed to are people of action, my mother very much so. So as soon as that diagnosis came, my mother put out to a million people, my daughter Margie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Who do I need to see? What do I need to do? Where do we go from here? Yeah, there's no dwelling in this. It's no. just, what do we need to do? Let's move this forward. Exactly. And very quickly, people had said to her, you know, with multiple sclerosis, which is the case, there are some things that can affect your eyes. You should make sure she sees a neurological ophthalmologist. And it's imperative. The, the, the doctor that they, everyone said I should see was this doctor in, in Boston, Dr. Weiner. He was renowned for MS. He had written books on it. He was the doctor to the people who were renowned with MS. And getting to him was like getting to the Wizard of Oz. But my mother had had a client who was very connected, and she knew people and put in some calls. And they said, okay, we will see you in a few months, which was great. So we had that on the books. And then we had gotten names from other doctors. I knew this person wasn't going to be my doctor. And I started getting names from people in New York, and I started interviewing people. Um, what were some of those questions that you were asking? I think initially it wasn't so much what I was asking. It was, I wanted, 
I wanted to meet them. I wanted to get a sense of who they were and the way they maintain their practice. You know, I'm a headhunter. I talk to people all day long. I knew that if I could get in front of somebody, I would know very quickly if it was right or wrong and I would get on board or not. Yeah, there's a certain feeling. Yes. There's a certain energy of this works or it doesn't. Like any relationship in life, whether For it's sure. a marriage, a friendship, a, a work relationship where you just go, this is good. Or this isn't good. So how many different doctors did you interview? Four. And how did you um, land on who you landed? I just loved him. I really, Dr. Herbert, um, who has since passed, and I, I'm so very much in his practice, and I loved him. But he he was the last doctor I met with, and I was at the point where I was just so exhausted, telling my story, reliving my story, crying every day, having my mother with me and my husband, and going to these appointments and not knowing what was going to happen and what was next. And I remember sitting in an office and he is, he was a little bit of a little pudgy South African Jewish doctor. He was probably at the time in his late sixties and he was sort of a quiet thinking sort of guy. And I go in and we're all in the, in the examining room and he's looking at me and he's looking at my strength. He's watching me walk and he's kind of looking at whatever notes he'd gotten. And he's asking me very specific questions. And then he just says to me in his accent, you know, can you tell me about what happened? And I start to kind of go through the whole thing of how it happened up in Cape Cod. And then all of a sudden I burst into tears and I said, you know, nobody knows what it feels like. And I'm a skier and I'm a mother. And I start to go through everything, you know, that I do. And he, he, he you know, stopped the conversation. You know, he cocked his head and he looked at me and he said, were you a skier before? <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, that's what I'm telling you. I was a skier. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, You'll be a skier again. <laughs> he said, this is not going to kill you. And he like looked at me and I just was like, I love you. I just loved him. He was real. He was totally real. He recognized that you were advocating for yourself and yeah. for your health and taking your health in your control here. And he was supporting you in those decisions. Absolutely. And he gave me permission to really sort of put my coterie of people together. And he believed in me. And that's what I did. And I finally got to a place, once I was in his hands and on medication and started to feel better and started to feel like, okay, I have a little control over this. Not total control, but I have a little bit of control over this. I got to find my people and I got to figure out what my team needs. And, I, and I'm in charge of it. And he let me go with it. And that's what I did. It is so incredible to have doctors who are willing to connect with one another. I have that with my team at NYU and the NIH. And it's so, so crucial for them to be able to say, here's where we're at. We just saw this. We saw Harper do X, Y, Z. And there's such synergy when the NIH is not anywhere near here and I'm not going there regularly. And NYU is within walking distance. I can right. go and do what needs to be done there. But for them to communicate and assess what needs to be done or things that they're thinking is so huge. I had one doctor that like refused to be on emails and it just made things so much more complicated. Yes, it does. I think we can't forget the humanness and the human importance. It's so huge to have the right team while you're going through stuff like this. I think it's the most important thing. Yeah. So how does living with MS affect you on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, I think to the outside world, I don't look like I have anything. Invisible is, illness. Which is kind of great. I have certain what, what we call, when I say we, I mean my doctors and I, call my scars. So every episode I've had, and I've had four since I was diagnosed, um, has left a scar. And so for me, 
the side of my nose is numb. My half of my tongue is numb. My right ear doesn't hear so well. Um, my left ankle and foot isn't so great. I, you know, I have things that I live with. Sometimes my right arm from my elbow to my shoulder underneath here is a little numb. You know, I have things that come up. Stress makes it worse. Lack of sleep makes it worse. Heat makes it worse for me. And I think those things affect a lot of people with MS and probably other autoimmune diseases. But for me, I know for sure. So every day I have those things. I'm very conscious of, of using my core and picking up my legs when I walk and using escalators frighten me. I want to step up. I want to make sure I'm walking correctly. I'm very conscious of it and I work hard at maintaining it, which I think is good for any person getting older. <laughs> you know, I think yeah, it's important. Sure. So it's not the kind of thing that you would see on me. And I constantly um, am aware of people's gait, how they hold their body. How they carry themselves. No, I, I I'm fixing am. my posture as she says this. Right, exactly. Um, you know, I, I'm just aware of it now because it's something to be grateful for, really. And I, I think what I started to say earlier was when I was diagnosed and my mother felt so badly that I had MS and we were going to a doctor's visit. And I said, you know, in a weird way, it's kind of a gift. I felt like looking backwards again, I was in a place in my life where I wasn't paying attention to me really wasn't. I was last on my list. You know, my, my kids and my husband and my business and starting a new business and my friends. And I, I had a very busy full life and I still do, but I didn't take care of myself and I didn't know I needed to. It didn't even register anywhere that like, you have to take care of yourself. When the MS thing happened, I was like, okay, this is a wake up call. You better take better care of yourself because you're going to hurt yourself or die. And it was real. So I really started taking better care of myself overall. It's unfortunate that we have to go through horrible situations and diagnosis to make us recognize what needs to change in our lives. Yeah. And you recognizing that you hadn't really taken care of your health and you weren't prioritizing you because you were prioritizing everyone else and everything else. But this sort of changed that. Sure. Um, so I know a big thing for you is physical fitness. Yeah. She's got her soul cycle shirt on. Yep. So what do you do for yourself to keep yourself healthy and managing okay. MS? So I, I love to soul cycle. I love to spin. I happen. I've always been a physical person and I'm, I've always been a strong person, you know, physically strong. And I love that. And many, many years ago, my husband said to me in passing day, he said, you know, you're a jock. And I said, what? He said, you're, you're a jock. I said, I am. I, I never I never thought of myself as a jock. I never, I was not that great at team sports. I never, it was never, he said, no, no, you, you keep your eye on the prize. You'd like to be involved in the game. And I thought, and all of a sudden I started, it changed the way I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, I like to be physical. Um, so I started spinning probably seriously about five years ago. I actually was on vacation with my sister and my mother. And we were at a spa and there was a, a fitness class and I'm very competitive. And I looked at the class. I kind of assessed the other women in the room. Everybody was thinner than me and more fit than me. But I thought, I got this. And the class was so hard that the teacher came over to me and said, just sit down and keep pedaling. <laughs> and that is the truth. And I thought to myself, this sticks. And at the end of the class, my sister and I looked at each other and I was like, I'm never doing that again. I would never. This really stinks. And then the next day I woke up and I said, wait a minute, I'm going to do this again. This is bullshit. Love that. I'm like, I I'm not going to let them beat me. So I started going to SoulCycle. I actually lived near one of the studios in my neighborhood downtown, and I walked in and I said to them, hi, 
I'm Margie. I'm however old I was at the time, probably 50 or something. I said, you know, I, and I have multiple sclerosis, but I'd like to do MS, but, I, but I'd like to do spinning. And the teacher said, and the woman said to me, okay, okay, great. Get used to me here. Yeah. And, and I sat in the back row. I still sit in the back row. I love the back row. I love it. I love to see the whole class. There are times where I feel like I could cry back there. Nobody's looking at me. It's a collective sport. So everybody's doing it together, but doing it privately, which I kind of love. It's brought me to meet. I've met so many fabulous people through it. And I love that. So that's been something I've been doing. My sister had a mommy friend that she knew from Brooklyn. My sister lives in Brooklyn. And she, um, who's a, a fabulous yoga instructor, very, very well informed, very talented. And she mentioned to her, she said, you know, my sister was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And this woman said, balance is really important. You know, I, I work with people with certain illnesses like that. Perhaps I should meet with your sister. And my sister said, great. She introduced us. And right away, she helped me figure out what I needed to do to be more balanced, to be more secure, to use my core. Uh, and I started doing yoga right away. And through this person, she hooked me up with private yoga teachers who would come to my house once a week. Then I started doing that. And then I said, this is good. What else can I do? And then I started doing Pilates privately. And I work with a private teacher with this. I do Pilates and I do gyrotonics with her, which is amazing. Then I started seeing an acupuncturist and I see a homeopath. And I just started to take better care of myself and spend my money on those kinds of things. And it was really sort of the thing where I was like, well, I can afford a big fancy whatever, or I can choose to go to four classes. And I felt like that was the right choice for me, you know, Love it. for me. And I stick to it. I love it. And I love that I have a team and I love that people get it and know me. And people often ask me, can I refer somebody to you who's been diagnosed with MS and really doesn't know what does? It's absolutely, it's scary. And I think anybody with an illness, you included, you know, I think the shock, you know, it's okay to throw a private pity party for a period of time. It happens. But then you got to get over. Like, you got to say to yourself, all right, I'm going to give myself three months to really cry every effing day and feel really sorry for myself. And then I got to take a look around and be like, you know what? I'm luckier than other people. I have better than I have a great team. I mean, I'm so grateful in my life. I'm, I've always been kind of grateful, but I think this really helped me remember why I'm grateful or what I'm grateful for. Because everybody has shit. Yeah. Everybody. And, and you're such a people person. So it's really, for you, it sounds like finding your people, your tribe of the doctors and then more of the holistic approach. And I wonder where your personal life changed or stayed the same when you received this diagnosis. Did you start telling people about it? You know, people who don't know what MS is, and most people don't really. It's an autoimmune disease. People don't know how it affects you. And, and it's a big umbrella term and it sounds terrible. It's like saying cancer, but there's lots of forms of it. And there's lots of people living with it. So I think initially people were very uh, skittish and very much afraid to engage with me about talking about it or doing something or being with me. It was weird. Well, I think it's one of those things where most people don't know how to respond. What is the right thing to say? Right. There isn't they a don't. right thing. That's right. People don't know how to respond. And there is no right thing. 
The one thing I will say for sure is my husband from the get-go said to me, okay, all right. And, and I kept saying, no, no, you don't understand. I have a mess. He said, no, no, I get it. All right. He was we'll like, get through this. Yeah, he, but he is a person who lives, the glass is totally full. For me, by nature, my glass is totally empty and somewhere in the middle we meet. I'm now much, I'm more full, but right off the bat, he was like, okay, so these are the cards you dealt. That's incredible. Figure so it be out. it. It is what it is, and right. we're going to figure out what needs to be done. So anyway, six weeks later, I start to go back to work. I get on the train, and I'm starting to feel a little anxious and worried and nervous. Can I do this? How's it going to feel? And I'm sitting on the train, and I have this thought. I'm looking around the car, and I said to myself, you know, everybody lives with something. I know my something. This is my something. And I just, it kind of comforted me. It kind of, being in a city like New York, it sort of was like, okay, we all live here. We all chose to be here. And everybody's dealing with what they have to deal with. And this is what I'm dealing with. And this is the best place for me to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'm smiling and sort of laughing because I'm thinking about the number of times I've sat in New York City restaurants going, wonder what their deal is over there. What do you think is going on there? What's their story? Who are these people? Exactly. You just have no idea. And I think that's, you know, one of the many reasons why this podcast exists is sharing people's stories that walking down the street, you would never know right. what people are coping with. That's right. I think it's also inspiring to know that people are coping with stuff, that it's not easy. And some days are harder than others, but we're coping. And that's a good thing. Not every minute of every day, but we are coping. And that's great. And I feel lucky, very lucky. You know, from that perspective. Yeah. You mentioned that people have connected you with people who have been diagnosed with MS to sort of offer your support. What are your key things that you share with them? First of all, throw yourself a pity party and cry and get it out. And But it's got to be a finite amount of time. And put your team together. Those are the, the two most important things. And I'll help you put your team together. And I'll help you do that. I've done that with a couple of different people. And one of them is actually a very good friend of mine now. You know, it's, it's one of those things where we're constantly talking about, you know, uh, new things going on in MS. Should we switch from an injection to a pill? Are you trying this versus that? So it's nice to have people to discuss that stuff with, you know. And one of the things you also said earlier that I think is really important to note, and I, I wonder when you interview other people or even with you, your, your stuff that you deal with, one of the things I, I figured out for me with MS was that Every person has their own individual barcode. And even though a medication for whatever illness you have is out there, maybe there's few, there's certain things that align with your barcode and certain things that don't. And I never really thought about it like that because I never had to. I didn't have an illness before that. And then I was like, oh, this goes with this. And I would love, I wish there was a science or type of medicine where they could figure out why this goes with this or doesn't, Right. So I know that I, on, on MS, I've, I've tried a myriad of medications over the years. Some have been disastrous. Some have been phenomenal. And again, we're kind of guinea pigs. Yeah, I mean, it's totally a research type thing. So I'm part of a research study at the NIH. And a few years ago, they came out with a white paper on how acupuncture is valuable for people with my condition. And it was one of those things where it's like, okay, cool. I'm already doing this. Glad to know it sort of validates that what I'm doing actually will help. But it's being the guinea pig, being open to trial and error 
right. to figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Right. And hopefully in being part of a research study as I am, it can help other people down the road with finding their diagnosis early and or treating it properly and faster because there's just like not a lot of research out there. Right. And I think people are trying to figure things out. I agree with that. And I feel like when you find the right medication, also making that vocal. You know, I, I feel like part of what's great about you and I is that we're talkers. So when people do call me and say, well, what do you think? And I, I will tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly about certain medication. I was on one medication, which initially was phenomenal. I mean, it was probably phenomenal for eight years. And then I had a terrible reaction to it after eight years. It was like my body said, you're done with this. And I couldn't use my hands. I lost my memory, my cognitive ability. I mean, it was literally scary. And it took a long time to come back. It's not totally all back, but it was really scary. I think that was actually worse than the MS, truth wow. be told. But there was no research. There was no, you know, so I said, let me tell you, and what you should put in my record, any, first of all, who I am, where I live, my age, all my stuff, and how long I was on the medication, how many years it worked, and, and then what happened. Yeah. Because that's how we're going to know. That's how we're going to learn. Yeah, for sure. What would you tell people who do not have MS? and have not had experience with a loved one or someone they care about with MS, about MS? What should they know about it? I think it's depressing. I think I, I think it's one of those things that you, sometimes it's hard to take the long view because it is one of those diseases that can get worse over time. It doesn't always, but it can. And that's a frightening thing to live with. It's a frightening thing to live with. I think, and I'm not sure I have the answer yet, as to what's, what's a healthy amount of time to really dwell on it and what's not. In my day-to-day -day life, I don't think about it that often. Even the things that you ask me that I feel every day, it's now a part of me. So I know it's there. You know, this we've had terrible weather in New York and there's heat advisory. I think about that. I think about the clothing I'm wearing, making sure I take a cool shower, making sure I'm getting enough sleep on this. I mean, so from that perspective. But does it affect my every minute of every day? It does not. It really doesn't. You know, I think with any disease, be kind to people who are suffering. I mean, I feel like as I age, I look at older people differently. You know, I look at handicapped people getting rides in those cars throughout the city differently. What they have to do to show up somewhere is so challenging for so many people. Be willing to be helpful and not judgmental, you know, which I think is a good lesson in life, period. Absolutely. Because as you said, you have no idea what people are going through. You're on the subway, you're commuting in the morning, and everyone's cranky and has to get to work. And you just have no idea what's going on, what's happening to this person next to you, whether they look ill or not. I mean, think about the number of women who talk about how no one gets up for them when they're pregnant because they don't see the belly or they don't really give a shit to help someone. So with the people that are struggling with invisible illnesses, as we are, imagine how we feel when we're dealing with stuff. I mean, I remember after having surgery years ago, trying to go to a concert and trying to get into the handicap section because I physically could not walk the stairs to get to regular seats. Correct. And I looked like a normal functioning person and they didn't know how to handle it. Right. Because I'm like, no, 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 but I have a doctor's note and I physically can't climb these stairs at Red Rocks in Colorado. And we ended up having to pay them off because that was the only way to get into the handicap section because I physically couldn't do it otherwise. That's crazy. And those people live with stuff like that all the time. Yeah, you just have no idea. So this was amazing. And I think there's so many interesting tidbits here to share with people about your life with MS and the importance of finding your team and being your advocate and obviously taking control of your own health 
and figuring out what works best for you. Um, if people want to connect with you, Margie, and maybe hire you as their badass recruiter, <laughs> how can they find you? Um, so they can email me. My email address is Margie, M-A-R-G-I-E, at citystaffing.com, and it's C-I-T-I staffing.com. You can get me for this, for MS, for staffing, any which way. I'm happy to share a conversation. She's an open book and a wonderful human being. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. I think it's necessary. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.